Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Oxford's Pinar Ozcan, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Oxford Fintech Initiative. She specializes in strategy, entrepreneurship, and the emergence of new markets. Pinar has worked as a management consultant for Siemens and strategy consultant with technology and venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Pinar, it's great to be speaking with you today. Talk about a list of questions that I was looking forward to getting stuck into. So I'm looking forward to working through some of them. But you're a highly respected academic. I'd love to find out on the basis of what inspired you initially with your research and what that journey's looked like so far. What inspired me to do research is really um, my hunger for knowledge and the way that um, I saw knowledge, especially knowledge that was coming fresh out of research, being regarded and respected. When I was growing up, um, I am the daughter of two entrepreneurs, and uh, they um, started the first uh, private executive education firm in Turkey, in Istanbul, where I uh, was growing up. And uh, growing up, you know, uh, in the background, while all these uh, classes were going on in their little company, I saw all these professors being invited from universities and giving all these talks and, you know, being in the backseat and handing out the flyers, etc. I always thought this is really what I want to do. I want to have direct access to knowledge and I want to pass it on. So that's what uh, inspired me to be a professor and to do research. Is that still why you do what you do? Because what tends to happen as careers go on, Pino, is that things evolve and people find areas that they get more and more interested in over one or the other. Where do you sit today as to doing what you do today? I actually gravitated more and more uh, towards research. And one of the things that I struggled with when I was uh, a junior academic was that my teaching and my research were quite disconnected. And that uh, it was difficult for me then to get inspired as I do today in the classroom. And so over time, I tried to listen more and more to students and uh, tried to understand, especially those who were coming directly from practice and have had years of uh, industry experience, what is it that that they find challenging? What can I do research on that they actually find useful and they can take back and apply in their lives? And so that attitude and that focus has led me to connect my research and teaching um, as it is today and allowed me to uh, to have more interesting things to say. Now, this is where I'm going to show my absolute naivety compared to the depth of research that you would have done, Pinar, but it feels like the evolution is, you know, we work in the technology and life sciences industries, both sides of the Atlantic. And it feels like technology is having the greatest rate of change across multiple sectors than has ever been the case before. There's barely a sector that is not affected by all of the incredible AI and technology that's coming out of the world at the moment. It will be really interesting to get your thoughts on where we are at the moment in, in comparison to history, because the, the the example that always jumps in my head is the automotive sector. And when robotics started coming along you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was a great fear for jobs in the automotive sector at the time. But yet that is probably one tiny example of how much all of the financial services, insurance, like there are the life sciences sectors, medical devices, there are so many different elements 
of where technology in particular is impacting right now. It'd be very interesting to see and have it put in a bit of context, if you could, in relation to where we are currently and, and how unique a time it is in human history, or am I completely wrong in relation to that assumption? I think that you're absolutely not wrong, and you may actually even be not saying enough in the sense that I think it's not just that every industry is being disrupted, but the boundaries between industries are also coming down. So uh, in my opinion, uh, what's, what the biggest difference is between um, a few decades ago and now is that uh, starting with digitalization, starting with the internet, more and more data has been collected uh, as humans live and as businesses go on. And over time, the more devices we have, the more uh, devices we use, we put on, whether it's your smartwatch and smart ring, or whether it's your car that listens to you, the more data is being Corrected, it means that there is actually more opportunity to turn that into useful information. And now we have the tools for it. We have machine learning, we have AI. And when you put those together, the vast amount of data that we've created over the last 20 years, uh, together with the machine learning and AI tools that we have, then we are in a situation where every sector is being disrupted because of data-driven innovation. Data-driven innovation, you mentioned automotive. We look at some automotive companies, and yes, they were disrupted many years ago with robotics, but they're disrupted again today. Even if Google and, um, and Apple may not be making cars, what's happening is that platforms that are data-driven, such as Uber and Lyft, they are actually disrupting their business because the future customers of uh, the, the Volkswagens and the Mercedeses are changing. They're not going to be you and I anymore. They're going to be these large fleets that buy in bulk. So every sector is changing. And what's also interesting to notice is that the data that resides in one sector starts to be then valuable for other sectors as well. When I'm applying for a loan within finance, typically the only thing that they looked at would be a credit score and then my basic information. But now your social media comes into play, your health record might come into play, your education might come into play. And all of this data is now being opened up through regulations such as open banking, open finance, as well as open data, which will be across industries. So it's not just that every industry is being disrupted by data-driven innovators, but also the boundaries between industries are coming down as cross-industry data becomes becomes useful in order to understand customers within each sector. Are we seeing, and does your research suggest that we're seeing, because the barriers to entry now for starting a business or an organization are so low, do we see that there is way more entrepreneurial and business starting going on than before? I would say that uh, there is definitely uh, a lot more entrepreneurship going on and particularly data-driven entrepreneurship going on. Uh, of course, we have to also um, uh, take into account the, the downturn of the, of, of the economy um, across the world and how that has had a slowdown effect on the, uh, on the investment that's going into entrepreneurship. So in our accelerator at o Oxford, for example, one of the things we see is that investors are a lot more careful. They ask many more questions questions and they when they give out money it comes with more conditions so the environment is definitely tougher which is in a sense slowing down increasing the failure rate of entrepreneurship 
But overall, I can see that um, the the trend that started with data and ML and AI entrepreneurship is now moving on to things like blockchain. There's lots of entrepreneurship going on in virtual reality. Um, and so overall, what we can see is that it's not just about AI and ML, but it is about other disruptive technologies and the next waves are coming. You mentioned blockchain. I think that that particular part of the finance market is is one of the really interesting examples of recent years where we've seen the valuation at some stage, not just blockchain specifically, but all of cryptocurrency that has had wildly different valuations, market positions, confidence within it. And I, I, I'd be interested to know if there's, it might not be your area of specialism, Pinana, for that. If it's not, I apologize. But is there anything from that particular segment of the market that is to be learned from? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question in two ways. One, uh, the specific case of cryptocurrency. And then the second part would be the, the larger uh, application pool for blockchain, because those are not the same. I think for many people, when we think of blockchain, we think cryptocurrency and we think of the turbulent uh, journey that cryptocurrency has had. Um, a couple of years ago, I published an article on why cryptocurrency has had such a turbulent journey. And in, in my research, one of the things that I really try to think about is the interaction between regulation and technology. And so there, I think it's quite important to understand how cryptocurrency is a, a type of market that has to sit together and work very closely with regulators. And this um, motto or this uh, approach of move fast and break things doesn't work in that market. And what we see is that many of those first uh, generation uh, cryptocurrency providers actually had that attitude because there was, there was a hype around it and people were investing. And so this is a case where I think over time, cryptocurrency will grow but it will be a growth that is supported and that co-evolves with regulation. Um, one of our current studies at Oxford uh, is on uh, the, the central bank the digital currencies. And so that's an area that is really seeing growth and action around the world. And I think cryptocurrency and central bank digital currency cannot be thought of in isolation. Mm. Now, on to the broader set of applications of uh, blockchain. I think that blockchain is really revolutionary in the way that it allows you to trace not just money, but also goods. So it is uh, finding lots of applications in, in supply chain, as well as in any uh, area where you can have smart contracts, right? And in real estate, it's really revolutionary. And so what I um, am looking at right now is how can we use blockchain to address some of the world challenges. One of the case studies that we're looking right now at is how large global charities are adopting blockchain uh, applications in order to um, allow donors to see not just where their money is going within the charity organization, but all the way to where the money is being used, uh, whether that's a, a housewife in Af Afghanistan trying to feed their child, or whether it's a disaster area in the southeast of Turkey. It, blockchain is actually a quite important when it comes to allowing us to have transparency, speed, and, and traceability. So those are some of the applications that I'm more excited about. We talked before the recording began in relation to you know how entrepreneurship and, and how it's shaped by technology is one of the areas that you've been looking into, researching the most PNR in, in recent times. The obvious example that comes up, and as you said, it 
it affects every single sector and has that. I, I really loved your phrase before. It knocks down the walls to actually allow so much merging to go on. But AI, we're talking in the, the seven days since the uh, the Global AI Safety Summit happened at Bletchley Park. And there were a couple of pretty standout quotes from some people that appear to know what they're talking about and would be a, a, a pretty decent um, <laughs> a, a, a point of conversation. There was the quote from Elon Musk that talked about it being a, a, a threat to humanity. And then there was the, fa- the co-founder of DeepMind who said that a pause in the technology's development might have to be considered over the next five years. Now, I can't ever remember seeing or reading quotes like that. And I'd be fascinated to hear, especially from the standpoint that you've been looking at in relation to entrepreneurship shaped by technology, how on earth you can have industry figures talking about danger and halt and pausing and still have entrepreneurship happening and them coexisting nicely together. So it'd be really fascinating to get your thoughts on that. Of course, I think that this is a case where innovation has uh, uh, gone so fast that uh, we have created a situation where uh, the the boundaries of the innovation and what it should do and what it shouldn't be allowed to do are haven't been set. And there, the key word is regulation. I've, and p- part of the difficulty with regulation is that Every country may have their own approach to regulating AI, and some countries, and you know, here I can uh, quote uh, so some of the Eastern uh, uh, countries. They have had a pretty laissez-faire appro- approach, which which makes sense because it it uh, allowed them to create these amazing services that customers can't live without. However, the problem is that unless there is coordination between countries on AI regulation, this is something that cannot be paused for five years or 10 years or any years because innovation will just move from place to place. And so I think if we've seen that the last decade was a decade of AI, first data and then AI coming into our lives, the next decade has to be one of AI and regulation. And there's some important strides on that. But I think that if they're concentrating in one or two geographical areas, if there's no cooperative approach uh, between countries, it's going to be impossible to stop uh, the growth of AI and, of course, the, the potentially uh, damaging consequences of it. When there's such political, geopolitical differences across the world, when it, it seems like on matters of pollution and environment where there is almost no common agreement point. Is there, I don't want to be, I'm normally a very half glass full person, Peter, (laughs) (laughs) but is there any hope that actual regulation can be done in a global sense to ensure that this is developed the right way? That seems like it's an absolute no chance, doesn't it? I think that there we can look at uh, some examples of how this could potentially happen. When in, when I say cooperation, it doesn't necessarily have to be that everyone sits together and everyone agrees because that is, as we know, that is impossible. Otherwise, there'd be no wars today, right? But what we can think about is some of the leading examples of AI regulation, whether that's the EU, I think uh, admittedly UK is lagging a bit behind, the US is trying to wrap its head around it. Um, And so some of the exemplary regulatory pieces that are coming into our world could then be copied by others. And if there is agreement on which ones uh, one would 
actually work with, then we can get to that consensus quite a bit faster. We're seeing something like that in the case of open banking and open finance, to be honest. Um, UK and EU were the uh, pioneers of these uh, pieces of regulation, and they have been copied by many dozens of countries around the world by now, which have really helped uh, people um, unlock the power of data. So if we can imagine a similar approach where AI regulation is actually, there are certain countries that everyone looks up to, and then what they do becomes something that gets imitated, then maybe we can get there faster rather than trying to all agree. Um, I'd be really interested to know from from your recent work, Pinar, what some of the most interesting entrepreneurial and tech innovations that you've seen during, during your last kind of six to 12 months. Be interesting if there are any specific examples that jump out to you. Of course. So um, in the last uh, few months, we've been doing a lot of research on uh, the advantages and challenges of uh, working with data and AI. And one of the studies that I'm most proud of um, today is uh, the one where we looked at um, AI startups across uh, different uh, industries. And so imagine some of them are uh, using generative AI to help large firms uh, send, uh, you know, replies to their consumers when they have a complaint. Others might be looking into, you know, um, e- medical imaging in order to uh, predict uh, the, the, the the chance of cancer. And so there's some pretty interesting um, applications, but one of the things that they all have in common is that typically entrepreneurial firms don't start with a whole lot of data. Um, unless they're coming out of a university, um, they are actually in need of data and data and AI are inseparable. And so what we then see is that that first customer that they have, the first customer that is going to either do a pilot paid or not paid, that pilot is crucial in the uh, growth trajectory of that entrepreneurial firm. Now, the crux of it is that that data actually also really specifies their algorithm, meaning that if I've been working in general with medical imaging and then I get, uh, you know, thousands of images from colonoscopies, then suddenly I have become a, uh, you know, uh, probably a bowel cancer AI firm. And so these kinds of really specific data actually make it impossible for these entrepreneurs to then uh, see where else they want to apply it. And so we call this the curse of the first customer. And one of the uh, takeaways for entrepreneurs that we'd like to give is that, uh, that they are in their chase for data, in their hunt for data, they think of the uh, next steps. They don't just accept any customer that w- that is willing to work with them, but think about what's the next sector I want to get into? And is this data going to make me a bit too specific and therefore trapped in my t- in the sector? Some thought-provoking stuff. The thing that, that popped into my head there, and again, slightly random, Pina, but I hope you'll get the angle, is like the mistakes that can come from technological innovation before and like and the life like penicillin being the great accident of, I think Viagra being another, there's like there's, there's many different examples of things that have been created that weren't meant to be created. They were being created for, for, for a different reason. But you're saying that the great danger is when you're developing something that, that businesses, as soon as they get approached by something or have interest, that's immediately what they do. Can you just maybe expand on that a little bit more? 
Yeah, I think it it, it really emphasizes the the importance of um, a, a seeing your uh, growth trajectory as a startup, um, not just the next step because that seems most urgent, but the few steps ahead, like a chess game. What is it if I get this data? What is this data going to do to my algorithm? Who is going to be then my investor? Who else could I go to afterwards? So it's basically it basically uh, says that you need to uh, strategize not just for the next year or two years but for the next 10 years it would be great to give our listeners who i know are a, a, a bunch very 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 keen on learning indeed of um normally at the end um pina i ask for is there one book but with with the uh, with the research position that you're in it'd be fascinating to know if there are any research studies or works that have been done or maybe a, a bit of a, a a shortish list of of, of, of thought-provoking books for innovation for entrepreneurism that, that you come across that you could share absolutely so i'll give you um maybe one study that i i am fascinated with and one book that i'm currently fascinated with i'll start with the book one of my colleagues um here at oxford uh, professor paulo savage has uh, recently written a book which is called the four workarounds and what this work, uh, book does is it looks into how entrepreneurs that work with limited resources in order to address social issues are actually able to find workarounds um, in order to um, get to where they want to be. So in other words, how can you be a social entrepreneur with limited resources and yet achieve what you want to achieve? And one of the examples there that I contributed to um, was the way that a um, team of entrepreneurs um, in Zambia realized that in the last mile of Zambia, where there were no doctors and no medicine and children were dying out of uh, diarrhea because of unsafe water, there was actually Coca-Cola to drink. And what they ended up doing was um, they actually um, looked into the ecosystem, the supply chain of Coca-Cola, and realized that all those trucks that could go that go there, go to that last mile, all those villages, could actually carry some of the life-saving medicine. So they actually piggybacked on top of the Coca-Cola supply chain in order to uh, give um, children in the last mile of uh, African countries a chance to live. So it's examples like these that fascinate me where we can think about ecosystems and the way that we can think of technology in order to save lives, whether that's using blockchain, you know, UNICEF using blockchain in order to uh, in order to make sure that the donors know where the money goes or whether that's uh, chatbots being uh, trained in thousands of dialects in India in order for everyone to have access to financial inclusion. These are some of the things that fascinate me, the way that technology mm. can address um, world challenges. And now uh, onto the study that, uh, that, that I um, really am both proud of and uh, that I would love for readers to have a chance to read is the one that we uh, published last year, which is called The Digital Colonization. And so in this particular study, what we have looked at is the way that data management and AI um, is, in a sense, a, a door that uh, opens up, that opens uh, opportunities for big tech in highly regulated sectors. So far, research has looked into transportation, retail. Yes, Amazon is taking over and, you know, high streets uh, uh, sellers are dying. Okay, fine. But how about highly regulated sectors? Are they being uh, disrupted too? And the answer is a big yes. What we've seen is that 
the data management um, opportunities that big tech gets through cloud services, particularly Google Cloud, uh, AWS, Microsoft, gives them an opportunity in order to then um, also sell predictive analysis to some of the healthcare or education providers. And then with those opportunities for accessing data, they become, um, in a sense, the the biggest investors of uh, products and services in those areas. So we see that the ecosystem in healthcare and education and finance is being surrounded and, for the lack of a better word, attacked by big tech. And we are the first ones to show the mechanism through which that happens. So I highly recommend it. I will certainly be digging that out and having a good repeat. Now, that sounds fascinating. Um, I think it probably leads us quite nicely onto predictions of where innovation and entrepreneurialism will go in the next five to 10 years with, as you say, the explosion and the attack on every different possible facet of life. I'd I'd love to hear what you and your colleagues are are, are predicting over the next five to 10 years. Sounds good. Um, So... I think that especially my research and also many other colleagues um, like Paolo um, in in, uh, in Oxford um, are looking into how entrepreneurship cannot exist in isolation. And take the example of data. A lot of entrepreneurship right now is data-driven. Data needs to be accessed. Data sits somewhere. It needs to be interoperable. And so that brings forward the importance of ecosystems. We need to think of partnerships when it comes to entrepreneurship. We need to think of that first customer and the second customer that will give us their data. We need to understand what we can do with those predictions that we have created and how we're going to sell them, maybe not directly to customers because customers are wary of new and unknown firms. But imagine in finance or healthcare, maybe we will do this through a bank. And so those, uh, not just suppliers and buyers in the uh, in the traditional sense, but thinking of an ecosystem, thinking of interdependence between you and the rest of the world is, I think, the key for succeeding in entrepreneurship in the future. If there was one learn from all, all your years of study, and that's a pretty, probably horrid question, really, Pina, that you'd want to take, I've, I've explained earlier, but like we've got a really senior listenership base that, that tune in. If there was one learn or thought that you'd want our listeners to take away today, what would that be? Well, I think I'm going to be repeating myself now, but all of my research, and in fact, I'm now at a stage in my career where I'm thinking of how I would put all my learnings across my uh, uh, many studies and uh, over the different years um, into a book. And um, I've just decided that the book would be about ecosystem strategies. And so uh, within that, there are many angles. But so, for example, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the way that entrepreneurs enter highly regulated industries and the way that they have to work with regulators who, in many cases, don't understand the technology at all. And so my uh, take or my advice to entrepreneurs, the one takeaway would be, again, to think of your world as an ecosystem and in particular, understand how the data that you're going to be used also needs to be part of an ecosystem. Where is that coming from? Where is that going to go? And how are you going to use those uh, predictions, whether it's just generative or predictions of AI? How are you going to get them to customers? So maybe in uh, one sentence, it will be don't go it alone. 
<laughs> excellent. Yes. Yeah, step, step back and do a little bit of wider thinking. That sounds excellent, Pina. Um, I knew it was going to be a thought-provoking conversation. It certainly has been. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that really interesting years of work and experience that you've, that you've done. I know that there'll be lots that we take away some value ideas and thought-provoking stuff. So thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and do share with others in your network. Thanks again for coming on, Pina. Thank you so much, Pete.